0: Good morning. Glad to see you today. We are in week three of Fault Lines. Won't you say it with me? One, two, three. Fault Lines. And, uh, you know, we, we started the first Sunday with the idea that, that um, if we're not careful in the world we live in, which many times seems like a culture of lies, we'll, we'll build on a foundation that's not truth. And how many know that truth is important? That you don't want to continue your life believing something that's untrue because that's deceptive. And then last Sunday, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the 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 pressure of trying to have the perfect marriage, perfect family. And we just said this that that all families, say it with me, all families are flawed families, right? Because because we're real people and real people are flawed. And you know, I, I say sometimes. In fact, we did a series years ago and had T-shirts just to match it. Uh, elevation, no perfect people are allowed, right? Because when that perfect person comes, well, they're tough to deal with. If you're perfect, you wouldn't be here. I'm just going to let you know that you would be. You you just need to go ahead and, and go be with Jesus because um, the rest of us are still working on it, right? Little kids used to sing a song, God's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. He's still working on me, how about you, right? So this morning, I wanna, I wanna tackle this, this issue. We're gonna be in the Book of Ruth, if you wanna turn with me. The title is The Stage Stressor. Anybody ever been in a, a play, maybe as a kid, or maybe as an adult or teenager? I probably, I don't know, I've, I didn't calculate it, but I know I've been in six or seven, maybe eight or nine. Mainly Christmas plays, that was that was my niche, the Christmas play. I played every character just about I didn't play Mary. We didn't have those Christmas plays then. I, I played a rock one time. I don't know. They had me in a big bundle of stuff, sitting over on the side. I, my lines were easy, but I played. I played Joseph. I played just every wise men and shepherds and all. Those. And you know, the lines always trouble me because you had to memorize them, and then you feel like you had them, you could do it. But then when you got up in front of everybody, and and I'd get a little nervous a little intimidated and concerned that when I got up there, I'd say the wrong thing, that I'd forget it, and I wouldn't get it, because I was on stage in front of everybody, and maybe it's not a play for you, maybe it's been some other role that you've been in where you had to be up in front and say something or do something, and, and, and the concern about will you get it right became very consuming, and you know, when you're, when you're the innkeeper, I mean, memorizing that whole thing. There's no room in the end. It's hard to blow it, but if you don't get no in there, it's, it's a whole nother story. You know what I mean? And I think so many times in life, we are on a stage, a stage in, in front of the people that we love the most. There's a role that you play Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a son or daughter, maybe, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a, in a friend relationship that you have or another relationship that you've got going on in life that you play a role, and there's a stage in front of the people that you care most about, and the stressor is, I want to get this right. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I know most of you haven't ever made a wrong decision. But when you make a wrong decision, there's consequences. How many know what I'm talking about? I've prayed for people before that's made wrong decisions. They're like, pray that, you know, I won't have. But then sometimes there's just consequences God lets us walk through. I mean, I've had the Lord remove the consequence, and that's a beautiful thing. How many know what I'm talking about? But then sometimes to really understand that we shouldn't make that decision again, there's a sting to it, attached to it. And here in Ruth, well, there's a. There's a beautiful example in Ruth chapter 1, we'll read a few verses, and about the idea of this being on a stage in front of the people that love you and getting that role right. First chapter, first verse, the book of Ruth, and by the way, if you haven't read it, it's four chapters. I encourage you to read it this week. only take you a few moments to read it. It said, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2, then the, na- or the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. In other words, they didn't go to visit. They stayed. Verse 3 Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. It's a little bit of, in these five verses, a little bit of a depressing story at the outset. You got a family living in a place, and then famine comes. Let me, let me just spend a minute here. The famine. The famine kind of messes things up. Now what we know about famine in the Old Testament, we see this over and over again, that this is many times a judgment from God to get people back to Him. In fact, Ruth, um, most scholars believe that, that Samuel wrote Ruth and that it says it opens up with in the, in the day when Judges ruled in this time period. So it's a, a little bit of an extension of the book of Judges. It fits right in there because it's during that time. And certainly the cycle in Judges is that, that they're following God, they backslide, and then God sends um, a, 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 sometimes a chastisement or something like this, to get them back to him, and they cry out, and then he sends a deliver to to help them, and and here it is, we see this motif here in the book of Ruth, where, where there's a famine, and uh, it's contradictory. It's very contradictory to the name of the place where they're at, because they're in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. How many? Of the house of bread sounds pretty good. Somebody shout, house of bread. Now, it's contradictory because if you're living in the house of bread, well, there ought to be bread. You know, this morning, if you showed up at Long's at 530, that's when they open. You know when you're talking to a sugar addict when they know when Long's opens, but you walk through the door at 530, you got cash in hand, you know what a dozen cost, and you go and say, I'd like to have a dozen of those jelly-filled. Because if you're going to get a donut, you want to get the good one. Give me one of those, give me some of those jelly-filled. Mix it up and put a chocolate one in there. One of those blueberry, I don't like cake donuts except the, the blueberry cake donut. Put one of those in there. You know what I'm talking about. And then some of those satanic glazed donuts. Put a few of those in there. And you got the cash in hand and you've already told them what you want. Here's my order. It's a bakery. They have donuts. They're known for donuts. And they look at you and say, we don't have any donuts. You're like, well, give me a bear claw, give me a whatever. Just give me some of that stuff with sugar and dough. And they say, we don't have anything. That's a depressing day. In fact, you're going to walk out of there, you're not going to feel very happy. Maybe the Lord's rescued you, I don't know, but you're going to walk out of there. You're going to walk out of there, and you're going to say, that was odd, that was strange. But one day, you just want another donut, and you get there, and you're, Hey, I'd like to get a dozen, half dozen, ten dozen, whatever. And they say, we don't have any donuts. It be like going into a restaurant, your favorite restaurant. You go, and they say, we don't have any food. You're not going to be very happy. You go back the second time, and they say, we don't have any food. The third time, if you forget and go back. You're probably never going back if they say that again. You're going to find another spot. You hear what I'm saying? You're going to find another place that has donuts because it's empty. The shelves are bare and they don't have what they say they should have. And here's a Limelech and his family and they're in the house of bread, but there's no bread. And so he makes a decision. I'm going to get out of here and go to some place where I can get something, where my family can be sustained, where there's not a famine. And I'll say this, that for Elimelech, that decision on a natural level makes sense. Anybody with me? It just makes sense. But they're just not anybody. I mean, it's not like if you decided to move to Albuquerque, okay, well, or Phoenix or Houston or Denver or wherever, we'd miss you, but okay, you made a decision to do that. But for Elimelech, he's of the house of Ephraim. He's an Israelite, and the land that he lives in is the promised land. Everybody know what I'm talking about. It's a land promised by God. And so for him to make a decision to leave there and go to Moab, Moab's not a good place on on, on their radar because Moab's just got all these uh, things connected that are ungodly. And so to leave the promised land and go there is saying that, I'm getting out of what God has promised and going to another place. In fact, it even gets more serious with his name. Elimelech means God is king. But he's not acting like God is king because if he believed God was king, he would wait because he would know that God, who is king, is going to answer and going to supply. Instead, he gets out and goes to a place. And I would say this, a place of death for them. Elimelech, right, now you see the funerals. Elimelech dies. And and, and something makes you realize that they've made a step into another direction. Their next is not what God's next was because they hang out there. They don't say, Dad's died. Let's go back home. They don't say, okay, there was a decision made and now we've lost our Father, let's go back to our people. Let's go back to the place that we know, the place that God knows. They hang out. Looks like 10 years. I, I think maybe another 10 years. Could have been 10 years total. And they, and they marry wives, and, and they, they hang out there. And it seems like they're inclined to the way of the Moab, uh, of Moab more than they are the way that God had led them. And where God... Um, had promised land for them where they had been, the promised land, now they are in a land of compromise. And and you need to understand that, that compromise has the word promise in it. It it's a prefix, com, with promise. Compromise is is it means this, together with agreement. Promise, a promise is an agreement. How many know how many know that? Most of the time a promise is somebody promises you, so God promised land. It wasn't because they'd done a bunch of things right. It's because God chose them and he promised the land for them. God makes us a myriad of promises in here that are yours, that you didn't do anything to get God promises. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's beautiful. Don't live beneath the promise. Enjoy the promises of God right? But but here's the promise of God, and instead of that, they're choosing compromise. Instead of agreeing with what God has done for them, they're agreeing with the land of, of Moab with another agreement, together agreeing with something altogether different, and they hang out there until both sons die. And what a sad place that Naomi must be in. It doesn't matter if you see death coming doesn't matter if it's unexpected. There's differences, but I'm just going to say this: death is always a sting. How many know what I'm talking about? I stood in front of people to try to bring comfort and and, and and somehow celebrate life, but it's always hard. Doesn't matter if it's an aged person. It's different for younger people. I get that, but I'm just saying this: that it's always difficult. And here's Naomi. She's lost. The husband that she's been faithful to, that she made vows to and said, we're going to live life together till death do us part, and now he's gone. And now her two sons are gone. She's left with two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi makes the decision. She's had enough. Enough is enough. I'm not going to stay here a day longer. I'm going back. I've heard, here's Naomi, I've heard that God is giving bread Back in Bethel, in the house of bread, there's now bread. Famine's ended. God's blessing, and I'm going to go back. And so she makes this speech, this farewell, right? Here's the farewells now to to Ruth and to Orpah, her daughter-in-laws. And and they're like, we're going to go with you. And then Naomi, and we're going to look at it a little deeper here for a few moments, but she's kind of got a negative attitude. And you see it conveyed when she's talking to them. Again, I would encourage you to read these four chapters this week. She, she's like, you know, you guys can't go with me. It's my paraphrasal. You'd be crazy. You'd be insane to follow me there. Do you think somehow I'm going to get a husband and I'm going to have another uh, a son or two and then they're going to marry you and you're going to wait all that time for that to happen? You're crazy if you think that. You need to go back where you're from. And Orpah's like, yeah, that sounds crazy. Because you know if you, listen to the, if you listen to a voice of negativity long enough, they'll talk you into going in a direction that wasn't the right direction. Oh, what would have happened to Orpah if she had followed Naomi to Bethlehem? Are you with me? We'll never know that because she's talked out of the blessing that was coming. But Ruth, Ruth's a different story. Ruth is like, Listen. I'm not going to leave you, but I'm going to go with you all the way. I'm gonna, I, your people's going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. Wherever you live, I'm going to live. When you when you're dying, buried, I'm going to be buried there too. I'm with you to the bitter end. I don't care how negative you make it, Naomi. I'm going with you. What, what a powerful picture of family and marital commitment. That when you say to your spouse, it may get hard, it may get harder, it may be bad, and it may get worser. You know, you had worse, but there's worser. You know what I'm talking about? I know it's not grammatically correct, but we've been there where it's worser. And, and and here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's saying that no matter what happens, I'm with you. I'm not gonna leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. We're going to go through this together. And Ruth is saying that. And so in Ruth chapter 1, verse 18, say when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Naomi just shut it down. And now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city, I love this part, all the city, I can hear music playing almost, it's like a soundtrack to this. All the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She's been gone a while. Now she's family and friends. They're just so excited she's back. Everybody, we like it. We're welcomed. We like it, don't she? she's a, They're just doing all this stuff. And then Naomi, here she is. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord brought me home again, empty. Why do you call me Naomi? You filthy animals? I read it in there, but it seems like she's got that attitude. Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me, I mean, she just has got a bad attitude. Her perspective is certainly skewed. She's, she's looking back, and believe me, when your family's been lost, that's not a happy day. But she's so focused on that that she's changed how she even sees God. It says, so Naomi returned, and Ruth of Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now I think Samuel, writing this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted us to know that they left that place, and they came at a time when God is giving provision, when God is providing And it's a stark contrast to everything that Naomi is uttering from her lips. Naomi's come back, and God's dealt with me bitterly. And, you know, I I left here full, and now he's brought me back here empty. He's testified against me. Don't call call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. That's a a good name, isn't it? Pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Bitter. Bitter. Well, she's accurate about about what she's doing. Can you imagine? Everybody's excited to see. All the women excited. Again, the soundtrack's playing. Oh, we're so excited to see you. We can't believe it's you. You're back. Oh, don't call me, Naomi. Like, chill out, Naomi. Have a moment. You can be negative later, but right now everybody's celebrating you. Listen, don't kill the celebration when people are celebrating you. Some people just want to tolerate you, but there's others that will celebrate you. Allow them to do that. They want to do it, they love you, they care about you. And she just got this attitude. And I think we can all drift into that place. Because every one of us has had some stuff happen in life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, I've been around this, I've been around church and doing this long enough that, that I've heard the stories. People's like, you know, well, you know, I tried to do this, and then, you know, I'm just mad at God right now. Like, I, I'm confused, like, why doesn't God do this for me? Because, you know, I've done all this, and I've tried to do this right, and, and, and get a very skewed picture of who God is, right? The position that they have with him is so uh, out of alignment. And, and that's my, I'm going to give you three questions. My first question this morning is, what is your position? And I'm talking about this in, a, in theological terms. Theology is a the study of God. And I would say this, I'm going to make it a little more personal this morning. Your view of who God is. Because I'll be, I'll be just as, as blunt as I can that if your view of God doesn't match this, it's just simply idolatry. If you've created an image of God that isn't what God says about who he is, you've just made an idol. If you made God some God that takes and, he, and he's, he despises you and wants to afflict you and deal bitterly with you, you made God something that he's not, and you created an idol that you're worshiping that is not who he is. Proverbs 9 and 10 says this the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's understanding that God's higher than me. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are beyond me. That God is a God who who's who's at a level that I'm not. I am not God. I'm not on his level. I don't understand everything that he does. I can't explain everything he does because I'm not God. By the way, you aren't either. And so, so there should be this reverent awe and understanding and fear of who he is. And I love what Oswald Chambers says. He said the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear, fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Let, let, let me read that one more time. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It's understanding who He is. You'll fear a famine if you don't have fear of the Lord. You'll fear the funeral if you don't have fear of the Lord. But when you have a reverent fear of who he is, that he sits high and lifted up, that his train fills the temple, that he calls the shots, that he's sovereign of the universe, and that he desires to have a relationship with you, that's powerful. Right? When you understand like Philippians 4 says that, that he will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ, when you understand that he's got it, right, that his, that, that his mercies, they endure forever. Isn't that powerful? Like our, our mercy runs out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, like somebody does something, they do something again, they do it the third, they do it the 19th time, and you're like, Well, I don't know. Anybody know, you know what I'm saying? Right. You want to have mercy, but then the humanity of you is like playing a role in that. I love what Lamentations. I'd read the whole book of Lamentations, but we don't have time. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 Says, It is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fell not, let me read that again. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fell not, they are new every morning. I said, they are new every morning. Great is our faithfulness. Somebody shout, "Great is our faithfulness." The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. That's who God is, right? God is the God of James 1.17. Every good and every perfect Gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Matthew seven, Jesus presenting who God is. He said, "Everyone who receives, who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door is open." And then he says, "What man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked?" For a fish will give him a a serpent or a snake. If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Right? What's your position? How do you view God in your life? Have you allowed experience? Have you allowed hurt and woundedness to give you a a foggy unclear picture of who he is i'm going to tell you this visit and revisit his word and let him speak to you about who he is who he is second thing i see about naomi i think she had a wrong picture of who god was right her her picture of god seems more like the devil right doing all this ugly stuff to her her perspective and this question is, what is your perspective? When it comes to family, your perspective, the stage that you're on, the role you, you have in, front, in your marriage and your family and relationships, what's your perspective? And by that, I mean, what's your attitude? What, what's, your, what's your orientation? What's your frame of mind? How do you see things? What's your vantage point? What's your way of thinking when it comes, the mindset that you have? Because it's been said that perception is reality. And there's a bit of truth to that. It's a bit of truth. It, it, if you see it bad, it may very well be bad. It's like, you know, the whole, the whole question, like, is it half full or half empty? I'm like, it's half full if it's half full. It just is. If there's, if there's enough water in it to fill it, it's half full. And if you allow it, the enemy will cause you to look at your family and think they're half empty. Look at your marriage and think, well, it's just half empty. No, it's, it's, it, may, it, may need, it may need some development and improvement, but it's half full. In fact, when I look at that glass and they say, is it half full half empty, I'm like, I see five glasses overflowing. Are you with me? Because you've got to choose. Somebody say choose. You see, you've got to choose the outlook, the perspective that you're going to have in your family, in your marriage, in your life. Right? And, and perspective is incredibly important. Remember back in Mark chapter eight, you can read it this week if you want. Mark chapter eight, Jesus takes this blind man, leads him out of the city, gets him out there. And then he does the whole spit in the eye thing, and I want to find out more about that when I get to heaven, like you know. Because I would say it's strange. Jesus did some strange things that would stretch us. Are you with me? Everybody's like, you know, Jesus, I'm comfortable with him, but the Holy Spirit, I'm like, that kind of weirds me out. I'm like, well, Jesus was here, he would he would weird you out a little bit too, because he did some things that would cause us like, whoa. I want to spit in your eyes, and you're like, What's well, Jesus? I'm like, but it's spit. And he spits in his eyes. You know how he does it and all that. And then he then the man, what does he see? Well, I see I see men walking in trees. And what he's saying is, it looks like I see trees walking around. Not people. Looks like trees. In other words, he's not seeing clearly, his perspective, the way he sees it isn't right. And Jesus could say, Oh, wow, he was blind and now he can see. No, because Jesus is pretty intent on seeing with clarity having the right perspective. And he lays his hands again on his eyes, and when he does, now the man sees clearly. Jesus is just concerned, as concerned about your perspective and the way that you see others and the way you see your family and the things that you see about your spouse as he was for that man. Right? And it's it's making the choice to choose. I love what Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll wrote the uh, the, the uh uh, article about attitude, and I just want to—I want to read it to you because I think I—it's—I love it. Maybe you know it. Anybody know it? Okay, good. If you're too timid, you have to hear it again. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts, it is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing that we can do is play on the one string that we have, and that is our attitude. And I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. you got to make the choice every morning. You can make a choice to get up and be grumpy and hard to get along with and negative and pessimistic, or you can get up and say, today is a a new day the Lord has given me. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be glad in it. I'm going to start this day out with a right attitude. I'm going to smile at people, even if they don't smile back. I'm going to say thank you and please, even if people are rude, I've made my mind up today. I'm going to have a good perspective. My attitude's going to be right. Anybody with me? I mean, I wish that Naomi would have had that little speech right there before she still opened her mouth in front of everybody and blew it. Right? What's your perspective? Now, the Bible tells us this. Here's what we need to do when you think on some things. Philippians 4, uh, 8, 8 says, for whatever these are the things to think on, whatever things are true, noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report there be any virtue if anything's praiseworthy think on these things meditate spend time focusing on these things and i'll be honest with you if you if you if you are a parent or a spouse or whatever relationship you were in, if you focus on everything but God all the time, if your focus is always on the negative, if you're consumed with what happened 10 years ago, if you're consumed about Aunt Myrtle did that thing like 20 years ago and it's just messed the whole family up, if that's all you're consumed with, you're going you're gonna to get some negative stuff all the time. you got to get focused on the good things that God is doing. Proverbs 23, 7 said, As we think in our heart, so are we, right? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So I've got to allow my focus. I love what Henry Ford, I think it was Henry Ford, said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. That'd help somebody right there, right? I mean, the ant can move the rubber tree plant. Are you with me? I don't know if he can, but I'm just saying. Your attitude is important. And you got to check your attitude. I just want to say to Naomi, attitude check, you know, attitude check. Sometimes I have to say it to myself. Wait a minute, what's my attitude? What's my attitude? Something happens. Because let me tell you something. In your family, something will happen sometime that could cause you to have a bad attitude. It just can. I mean, if you're human, it can happen to your marriage. We had a couple here. I did both their funerals. They were in their 90s when they died. Beautiful couple. Married 70 years. 70 years plus. And I remember when I first met him, and then multiple times after that, the wife, who was a beautiful lady, she said, now we've never had one fight. And I'm like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, right. (laughs) But I love you, and you're beautiful. I honor you. I didn't say it out loud. Because I know if you get two people together, there's going to be a disagreement. Maybe she meant she just didn't knock him in the head or something. I don't know what she meant by fight, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, there's going to be some disagreement sometime. There's going to be some disagreement in your family. There's going to be something that goes wrong, and, and, and then people choose sides and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm saying this, that sometimes you got to say attitude check. Let me, let me direct my focus on, right, your, your kid didn't make it to the team. Your kid didn't get a good grade. It's okay. Your kid's still a good kid. Look at all the good things your kid did. Are you with me? Focus on the good, right? Lastly, here's the question because Naomi's making a presentation. I mean, I don't know. She's probably rehearsed all what she's going to say to him. I don't know in her head. On, on the track to get back from Moab to, to Bethlehem, she's just all frustrated, and she's got it all. Here's what I'm going to tell him. They say anything to me. She blurts it all out. Her presentation is not good. And I say this, and I believe it. I probably heard it somewhere. Presentation is everything. You say, well, I don't know. That's okay. Let me help you. Over the years, I've got to do a, officiate a, a lot of weddings. And uh, it's always a beautiful thing. when the, the groom's like right here, and they do the whole, you know, bridal thing, March, they don't do that over and hardly any every time. It doesn't matter to me, you know. Here she comes. She's walking down, and he's like, and it happens every time. There's never a groom like. He's always looking out there, smiling. A couple guys, I've seen tears in their eyes. They're just all just overwhelmed with emotion, They you know, and they're just watching, smiling. In fact, there's a time when they're supposed to go, get her hand from the dad, and I'll tell you what, I don't know how many times, I tell them, I like grab a hold of their arms sometimes because they always want to just go out and get them. As soon as she gets up there, they're so excited she's there. She looks so beautiful because brides are beautiful. How many know that? But now if she come down walking down the aisle and her dress is all ripped and got some patches on it, it's all stained up and her hair sticking every which way and face is kind of dirty and her shoes, you know, she got a heel broke or something. I'm just telling you, the presentation is going to mess things up. And it's like if you, if you go to that, that, uh, that restaurant that you like that didn't have any food I said earlier. You go there one time and the waiter comes to the table and you smell him before he gets there. Right? He looks like, looks like it's been three days since he had a shower and he's got all the stubble growing and his shirt's hanging out and he's got something here and all this stuff. The food doesn't sound as delightful when that presentation happens. The roach runs across the table, I can make it it worse. I'm just saying, presentation's everything. And the stage in which you were on before your family, before your spouse, and I'm talking to to all of us, or the relationship that, 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 that you have in your life, maybe it's a friend, what you present What you present is so important. Somebody once said, what you say is what you get. And Naomi's just spouting off a lot of stuff, and it's easy to do. Getting words right takes a degree of discipline and thoughtfulness. Because we all say wrong words sometimes. And I'm not talking about cuss words. You shouldn't be saying those anyways, but I'm talking about I'm talking about we say things that we know isn't helpful. And what words can do is emotionally, they can lift people up. They can build people. You know, somebody told you today, hey, your hair looks so good. I might mean, be like, thank you. I didn't spend as long styling it today, but thank you for that compliment. You look nice, A compliment compliment from a family member or a spouse well that just makes us feel good we feel like we look better than we do when somebody get right because words can do that emotionally they can make you feel better. they also words can drain and depress us they can emotionally devastate you you know you look at a child and one of the things that we should never say but maybe people have said it before. And by the way, Jesus makes all things. We sung it earlier. Jesus changes everything, right? So, so we can have confidence. Don't, don't get all tripped up with guilt and shame. That's not what this is about. It's about conviction that we correct behaviors. But, you know, we could say to, to a child that continues to, to disrupt us, leave me alone. Well, that's not what they need to hear. Emotionally, you just made a statement for them. Or, or this, you did a great job on the, your test. Why can't you always do that? Well they just they just gave everything they got to do good on that test. They put it all on the line, worked as hard as they've ever worked, and now what they've heard is that okay, great, but you don't ever get it right. Why don't you get it right and do better? I'm not talking about correction for a child. I'm talking about statements that we can make that can emotionally mess with a kid. You make me so mad. Probably a better way to say that, isn't it? Because people can make you mad. Anger is not a sin, if you don't sin in your anger. Are you with me? Right. Be anger. Be angry and sin not. It's what the word says. And so emotionally, we see what words can do. That's that's why you and I, presentations everything. I mean Naomi could have said it altogether different. We made a decision and we left here, and we had a full family. And I'm returning now, my family's busted, but I have this daughter-in-law with me who won't leave me, says she's going to come with me all the way. There's a bright side to it. Let me see that. Yeah. Mentally, words, well, I believe this, that words frame our future. Now, I don't mean that everything in our future is what we say, but there's words that we say that do bring about the future that we're going to experience, the next that we're going to have. Things that you say about yourself, things that you say about others. You know, to your spouse, here's something you should never say. What's wrong with you? There's a better way to say that to your spouse. Presentation. is It doesn't mean something's not wrong. It means how how do we go about saying this, right? Here's something you shouldn't say in front of your children. doesn't mean it's not the truth, right? I don't know how we're going to pay the bills this month. Well, they probably can't do anything about it. And you just put something on them. Is framing their future, so, so now now they're gonna, they're going to live with the mindset that that we don't ever have enough, right? That because because you you can speak a poverty mindset over your children by the things you say, and again, all of us have gotten that wrong, right? We we can get consumed with the past so much that we only speak out of the past context. It's it's like it's like the coach your favorite coach for your favorite team, basketball coach, football, or maybe some of you like soccer, I don't know, whatever it is, and they lost the championship game last year, last season. And if that coach in the first interview of the, of the year gets on there and says, you know, I'm really upset because we lost that game and the refs were horrible and players didn't live up to it, and you know, just, it's real, and all he talks about is that loss. We don't want to hear that. You want the coach that says, you know what, it might have been tough last year, but we're going all the way this year. We lost that game, but we're going to win it this year. Anybody know what I'm saying? Right? Getting consumed with something that happened back there and continuing to speak out of that. And spiritually, right, emotionally words have an impact, but spiritually they have an impact, right? Mentally they have an impact spiritually. Spiritually words can open a door Extended invitation to something that you don't need in your life. Now, I'm not the person that looks for some evil spirit behind every rock. That's just never been me. But I do know that my words, my words can bring about open doors in my life. It's, it's like somebody saying, I wish I was dead. I'd be careful saying that. Because just as much as we see a physical world right here, there's a spiritual world if you've ever read frank peretti's take on uh, it's called this present darkness or this piercing darkness there's, there's i think 3 of them in the series but but he talks about how that that uh, this little church there's angels that are positioned while people are praying but there's also ephesians chapter 6 gives us the picture there's there's levels of of evil, wickedness in a spiritual realm. It's trying to make an attack, and and it's, it's because of the people's prayers that these angels are, are able to guard against what's happening. Well, there's an, there's an evil one that desires to wreak havoc in your life. And so I don't want to ever extend an imitation, well, I wish I was dead. Okay, well, there's some spirit of death that wants to hang on to your life and, and help you work that out. I remember years ago, um, young girl, and some of it was music she listened to. Because, I mean, you know, there's, there's some hell music. Everybody knows that, right? Right? There's, there's some that, right? I, I know zippity doo Day or, you know, whatever. It's fun songs, whatever. But there's some evil music. And she'd just been listening to that and got into watching some stuff that wasn't good. And, and, and she'd become just, um, and I know there's dress styles, but, and nothing wrong with wearing black. Black's kind of slimming. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But she just always wore black, always wore it. And and she just had this, this. Uh, we had to pray for God to just bring deliverance because she had brought about this this death kind of spirit on her life, and a lot of that was what she was taking in and what she was speaking. Right? And so, so to your children, don't ever say, you're just like, and then, you know, whoever it is, like, I don't know, Uncle Harry, who's as weird as a $3 bill. And you just and you just spoke that over your child. I don't know what you're inviting over your child. You hear what I'm saying, right? They don't need to be like Uncle Harry. Don't tell them they're like that. Maybe they have some commonality. Maybe there's some characteristics that are like them. But don't speak that over them so that they you invite something over their life, or you'll never be any different. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's a lie, right? I mean, I'm telling you, we're all different. I remember the day when I had nice flowing locks of hair. I'm different. I'm different. You're, you change. We all get different. And, but 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 don't speak that over th- that child, that teenager, so that they get trapped into being just where they're at, and and, and spiritual influence lands on them. Yeah, I put this in things you should never say to your kids. Don't eat that or you'll get fat. Don't put that on your child. Don't speak that over your child. Don't don't, don't invite that over your child's life. Proverbs 18, 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit, right? Getting what we say right is important. Now, you say, well, I want to. And then this week, you slip up and say something, you know, that, oh, that wasn't good. Well, don't give up. I remember one young guy came, he came to me. He gave his life to Christ on a Sunday. That next week, he said, "Hey, man, I'm just I'm blowing. I don't know if I really got saved." He said, "I, I said these words at work, and and so he was used to just using profanity and vulgarity and saying all kinds of stuff." I said, "That's okay. You don't need to say that. But but you gotta you gotta allow time so you can get better at replacing that vocabulary with things that are different." You hear what I'm saying? Right, so 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 you blow it this week. Don't get all upset and like, well, you know, I, just, I can't do it. I can't. No, you just got to get better at it. You got to change your. It's like it's like learning a new language, you know. I mean, I, I can say hola amigo, uh, but I haven't I haven't worked at it long enough to get better. So you got to work at it, right? This is important for your life. Ruth 4. I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna close. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. So you got to read this to get all this. But God gives Ruth Naomi's daughter-in-law. This husband, this kinsman, redeemer, and when she went in, uh, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Verse fourteen. Then the women said to Naomi, "Here they are again. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may His name be famous in Israel. That's a prophetic word right there. And may He be—it's a declaration, by the way. And may He be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher." of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child, and she laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And then Samuel wanted us to get this. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, I'm going to tell you right now. It's amazing how God brought a turnaround for Naomi. She didn't get it right. She didn't have a right uh, position about who God was. She didn't have a right perspective. Her presentation was wrong, and yet God brought a turnaround. God gave her a son. That, that could have came no other way, whose name would be famous. That When you say the name of David, David has, has this, this uh, fame around the world. I mean, I love watching NCAA tournament, and they'll say, this is a David and Goliath matchup. It's the fame of David. Right here. God gave Naomi a turnaround, and God will do it for you.